Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is uh, Father Frank Lane. We're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. We're looking today at the Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. It's, um, it's part of the uniqueness of, uh, of Luke's gospel that he gives us a great deal of detail that we don't get in some, of the other, in some of the other gospels. And the question, one becomes, you know, why would that be so? And so here he begins saying, in the 15th year of Tiberius, Caesar's reign, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the lands of Eteria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene. During the pontificate of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So he's, he's identifying, and at the first there was, a, there was a great deal of early on in all of this, in the early scripture studies, especially in the 18th and 19th century, it was saying, well, Luke is just all kind of confused with this because none of this works out right. But by, by the beginning of the 20th century, they had realized that Luke was actually right on. And that uh, while they didn't think there was a Licinius in Albilene, not that it mattered to the gospel, but there turned out archaeologically, of course, to be that. And so what it comes down to is that John appears in the desert then, somewhere around 27 A.D., and uh, since we usually attribute the beginning of Jesus' public ministry to somewhere around 30 A.D., we find a very close connection then between John the Baptist coming out of the desert and Jesus beginning his public ministry, which, of course, corresponds um, to the gospel dating of the events. But why would Luke be so, so uh, attentive? And the answer seems to be, Um, for most, is that Luke was not a Jew, and uh, he was not a Hebrew and a Palestinian. In fact, he may well have been a Macedonian Greek, actually. And that, as an outsider, it becomes very important for him to show his familiarity with the whole story so that he's not perceived as someone interloping into into someone else's story. That he's not someone coming in Um, without a very clear idea, without a very concise idea of what he is supposed to be doing and saying, and establishing in a way his credentials, saying, you know, although I'm not one of you, um, nevertheless, I know a great deal about your story. And, uh, and this, of course, becomes part of the, of the, of of the Lucan, um, tradition, and puts his gospel actually a fairly late date, somewhere around 80 A.D., um, after the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem. So, and, um, and so Luke then, um, his, his infancy narratives and so forth, and most of the commentators don't mention this, but, and because there's no evidence for it, there's no, but it just seems where in the world would Luke attain um, the details of an intimate conversation between Mary and the angel Gabriel, if it was not from one of the participants in the event themselves, and therefore actually would it be probably from the Virgin Mary herself, from the mother of the Lord, that these early infancy narratives are in fact um, derived. 
So Luke has kind of a unique connection throughout all of this, which is why his gospel becomes particularly interesting for us. It has other characteristics as well. Since um, he himself was not a companion of the Lord, um, then he can take liberties with the story that others would stumble on because maybe they had themselves been there. And it's why his story really for Jesus begins with a journey from Galilee to Jerusalem and he'll change he'll change a chronology in order to keep in order to keep that pilgrimage from from Galilee to, to Jerusalem so that you know it's a story if he started out in Galilee where all things began with the Lord and then moved forward into uh, in, into uh, his encounter in Jerusalem with with the Romans and and with the uh, high priests and so forth. So Luke gives us an interesting perspective, and the and the the other perspective that he gives us is that he's very very adamant that the mission of Jesus Christ and the message of Jesus Christ is for all humanity. He has he understands that this is not just a Jewish experience. This is just not a Palestinian experience. This is a universal phenomenon, and we'll even see that in today's gospel as we go on a little bit further. But anyway, so Luke establishes a precise time for this, for this event in the desert with uh, John the Baptist, and it comes out to be somewhere around 27 AD, and uh, so coincides actually with, with the timing and the dating of the actual mission of the Lord. And so once he has established this and established that John is the son of Zechariah and, um, and therefore that the Baptist is the same one that Mary visited during the visitation, the same one that leapt in Elizabeth's womb when he encountered the Christ. Um, and then it says after he's established, first of all, the time, the date, the place, and the personalities. He went, and then Luke says he went through the whole Jordan district proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the sayings of the prophet Isaiah. And here he goes back and he quotes um, Isaiah 40. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord, make straight his paths. Every valley will be filled in, every mountain and hill be laid low. Winding ways will be straightened and rough roads made smooth and all mankind shall see the salvation of our God. So we have then once establishing, first of all, that Luke is familiar with the story and even has some precise knowledge about the story and time and place and identity of persons. He also now reveals that he himself is familiar with the prophecies of old and that he is more than willing to wrap the new prophecies of who Jesus Christ is into the old prophecies by pulling um, from the prophecy of Isaiah, the very one who John the Baptist, of course, pulls from. The next, the next issue in this, in order to kind of grasp and understand, is the person of John the Baptist. Um, a great deal can be said about him speculatively, and some of that is, is helpful for us because it can create context for us. And, and do away with things that seem to a great extent to be kind of irrelevant. First of all, in the wilderness, the wilderness was kind of a specific place, actually, in the New Testament. It was, it was uh, outside of Jericho. It was on the way to the Dead Sea. And it certainly was a land that was uh, very close to the Essene community in Qumran. 
There was a long tradition of the high priests or the priests from the temple and uh, walking back and forth on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho to go into the wilderness. Many of their sons, it was kind of like, uh, like a boarding school of sorts, many of their sons were sent to school to study under the Essenes in Qumran because it was there that they would be fully exposed and deeply exposed to the writings of the prophets. And as part of the, and the kind of the goal of the Qumran community, the goal of the Essene community, kind of was to discover who it was that was to come, that their emphasis was on the knowledge of the scriptures. And it's interesting that John therefore quotes Isaiah in his first proclamation, showing that he too has a deep knowledge of the prophets and he too has a deep knowledge of the prophecies that had to do with the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the one who was awaited. Now, obviously, the whole Essene um, understanding of it is more complicated than this and that they have... Um, elements in there which are not familiar to us. They have the teacher of righteousness, or they some is kind of a messianic figure who has already arrived and, and has been killed, actually. And there's a great deal of doubt as to who this character, who this person was. But, but there's enough familiar with the Essene community and the Qumran community that begins to show up in the New Testament. There's, there's one very, it's an older book, and I think that there is uh, there's a, a new scholar of the of the Qumran community, John Bergsma, I believe, who does a great deal with the Essene community. But of the older literature, um, Jean Danielou, the uh, the famous Jesuit theologian and scripture scholar, has written a book called The Dead Sea Scrolls in Primitive Christianity. Now, some of it has outdated theories because the book was written, I think, in the late 50s. Um, nevertheless, it gives a great familiarity with the relationship between the Qumran community and early Christianity, and especially the Baptist. And so it's kind of interesting reading if anybody is interested in pursuing that. Um, and once again, I said, I'm, I'm pretty sure that John Bergsma, who I think is a scripture person from Steubenville, um, he does a lot also with the Qumran community, with the Essene theology and so forth. But the fact is that now John is in the wilderness. In other words, he's back around Qumran. Was he one of the, Zechariah was a priest in the temple. Was his son John therefore educated in the desert by the Essenes? Is that where he got his knowledge of the, of the prophets from? It's all pure speculation. But it does help to create a context so that none of this is just happening in midair, that, that all of this has con some kind of concrete existential um, anchoring in the actual history of the, of the period of, of time and of the age. And Luke helps us do that with his chronology that he gives us in the beginning of the Gospel. As he went through the whole Jordan district then, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, the baptism again, deeply associated with Christianity. We believe, for instance, that, uh, that baptism as a sacramental sign contains in some ways the presence of Christ, that washing over and entering into the depth of a human person's soul they bring that soul into conformity with the truth and bring it into the living, nurturing grace of the church. Um, it was, in a sense, 
a, a ritual that long preceded Christianity with less, more symbolic and less real impact. And that it simply became a sign of conversion, a sign of change. Um, John um, Luke uses the word metanoia, um, which means a deep conversion from within, uh, is what he's seeking, what he's looking for. Um, but what it actually um, we find in the ritual baptisms, and Qumran used the ritual baptism frequently as just a sign of entering into a new state of life, symbolically washing away the old and making, making you know, the present the new. So he's doing this. When people, when, when people repent and when people turn away from their sins, it tells us something about the age as well. Um, if John is out in the desert, and it's not, a, it's, it's not a, a nothing to come from Jerusalem to Jericho and go out into the wilderness, um, it's something. It's a, it's a bit of a journey. That's why, for instance, in the story of the Good Samaritan, they have the Good Samaritan lying along the road between Jerusalem and Jericho because it was so heavily trafficked by officials from the temple in Jerusalem that it was a primary, it was a primary location for Jesus to contextualize his story of those who refused to help the Samaritan and the one man who did, um, of, the, of the, uh, the, the, the robbed man, and it was the Samaritan that did. And so it, it was something that made a lot of sense because people knew that that was a heavily trafficked road um, by, by certainly officials from the temple. And so it was using something very familiar to them to make a point. So coming out, they're coming out for a reason into the desert then. And, and this is interesting too. You know, in an age when people... When people have grown cold and indifferent to the possibilities of religion, it's, uh, it's, it, great crowds don't throng to uh, evangelists. I, I know that some do, in, even in our own age and day and age. But, um, but it isn't like it's on everybody's mind. Here, it seems like there must be something on people's minds. There is an aura of expectation in this first century story of the coming of the Baptist, people are beginning to have a sense that something is going to happen. It's, um, things are bad enough, maybe we could say, that certainly the corruption within Judaism itself, the corruption of the Sadducees especially, but also even of the high priest, the, 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 the indifference of, of Caiaphas to, to the prisoner Jesus of Nazareth, and, um, and, and to the insurrectionist Bar-Abbas, um, that, that somehow or other people are sensing kind of there's a kind of a, a, a deadly core to the whole thing. And it's enforced in a, most un, in a most unfortunate sort of way. And that way is, of course, by the power of the Roman armies. Because the power of the Roman armies were very, it was very oppressive. And we see this in the dealings of Pilate with Jesus when we come to those in the New Testament. That Pilate's, Pilate is talking to Jesus about, are you a king? And we just, we looked over that not so long ago. 
And um, and he and Jesus talking at cross purposes with each other, not really communicating, and Pilate having not, not only no comprehension of the kind of kingship Jesus talked about, but no interest in it whatsoever, um, because it didn't fit into the categories of, of Roman authority and, and, and Roman power and, and the structure that was everything for, for the governor Pilate. So that what happens then is that they have a sense of kind of a corrupting influence on the inside. They have kind of a sense of, um, of kind of a, a dead spot in the heart of their ancient faith. And they look for someone who's going to come, and they look for someone who's going to come and, and re-stir the kindle, the re-enkindle the light, re-enkindle the fire in the very heart of Judaism. And this is what they're looking for. This is what the Essenes are looking for. They're looking for the great Messiah, the one who's going to come and reconvert the people and bring back to life again the faith that seems so dead and so, so morbid alongside the road. And, uh, and so they're hoping for some kind of revival within, within Judaism. And, uh, and if, in fact... Um, where we have this pegged right, and, and Luke has it pegged right, that this is around, this story is taking place around 27 BC, AD. Um, it's, only, it's, less, it's only 40 years before the very heart is ripped out of Judaism, and the temple is destroyed, and they go into, into the, uh, the, the diaspora. And then the Romans come back in 135 under the revolt of Erkukba, and there they level the rest of the city of Jerusalem, including what's left of the temple, except for the base, which we still have with us today. So, so yeah, so it's a horrible time for Judaism. And they are to, they are to go through some real deep trauma. Um, and in that real deep trauma, they are going to become, their whole story is going to radically change from the people of Israel people of Palestine to kind of a, a, a dispersed people throughout the world, especially the Mediterranean area, but having no real place to settle, no real place to focus, um, for the center of their civilization has been decimated. In the midst, then, of this kind of sense that things aren't quite right, um, the Baptist appears in the wilderness preaching the repentance of sin. And, and, um, and this is a message very familiar to the Hebrew who is familiar with the prophets because, um, because this is exactly what the prophets have, uh, have also called for, is repentance and the begging of God, the Lord God, um, for forgiveness for their sins. And, uh, and, and, and I think it's... Um, I, I, I think it's it's helpful for us to kind of let this kind of context um, kind of sink into our own experiential life, so that this is just not kind of a cold narrative, but we get some kind of a sense, some kind of a feeling we might even want to say, and this is not to turn it all into sentimentality, but it's some kind of a feeling. Um, of, of anticipation, some kind of a t feeling of excitement. Otherwise, you know, this is a this is a dramatic narrative, and if we just read it like you know, like a straight text, 
it's not very it's not very interesting and yet it's a fascinating a fascinating passage in the scriptures because here we have this mysterious man maybe a student of the Essenes someone familiar with the desert someone related to the high priests of the temple in Jerusalem all of a sudden now proclaiming the forgiveness of sin and repentance and uh, and baptizing and washing people in water to show that they've changed their lives and have decided to follow the way the ancient ways of Israel um and and in in order to justify himself using the quotations from the prophets Isaiah with the most familiar prophet probably of them all and uh, and so basically are they looking for a revival of the, of the ancient faith it looks like this has all the elements of it right here right here in the desert now and they're not they're not put off by the isolation they're not put off by the desert because the desert has a special meaning the desert the wilderness is a place that um, that a person encounters the living god they encounter satan and the living god and this is true in early christianity as well it is saint anthony in the desert who actually physically wrestles with the devil and uh, because in his isolation and his loneliness the devil attempts um to corrupt him to change him to turn him away from the lord and it turns into actual physical combat exactly as jacob wrestled with the lord um and uh throughout the night and uh, and and in so doing encountered the living god and encountering the living god therefore became his faithful servant the whole rest of his life these are these are significant moments and sometimes it's hard for us because during during the the high philosophical ages of the middle ages that a great deal of the theology of god a great deal of the understanding of god was wrapped into logical structures and logical systems and encapsulated within within human within human reason and human understanding and yet in the old testament he is he is a much more active engaged god physically physically wrestling with jacob and uh, and and the, the minions of hell physically attacking the fathers of the desert and so forth the desert was the place where god and satan manifest themselves remember even in the temptations of jesus um we we have this where jesus is driven into the desert um, by the spirit to be tempted by satan let's uh let's go back to the lord's prayer and lead us not into temptation well yeah the holy spirit led jesus into temptation didn't he and uh and uh, because there there is something converting and something cleansing and something permanent about an actual encounter that is rejected so as john now comes out of the desert and into the jordan valley the district proclaiming a baptism for the repentance and the uh, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins he gets a sufficient amount of crowd that everybody hears about it and everybody knows about it even in Jerusalem and that people are then coming out and what are they hearing they're hearing the ancient prophecies of Israel proclaim um repent and seek the forgiveness of sins we might want to note that when jesus is first recorded words when he begins his own mission his own um outreach and and, and mission to the to the people that's exactly what he says repent seek the forgiveness of sins for the kingdom of god is at hand that this is the key and this is the key to us 
accepting Jesus as Messiah, the first thing is to acknowledge our sinfulness and then to repent of it and to seek the forgiveness of sin. The, the turnstable from the life of the world to the life of the Lord is forgiveness of sins. The sacrament of reconciliation is that through which we pass to go from, a re, from an unrepentant, secular, dark world run by the forces of this age, the forces of this world, the Roman army and all of its manifestations throughout the next thousands of years, that that which claims, the, the claims to own our souls and claims to have a right to our minds and our hearts, that is what we throw off. That is the yoke we get rid of. And that is the repentance of our sins. And then to actively seek the forgiveness of those sins. I think it's very interesting that at least in some places where the opportunity is offered, there is a huge response to the opportunity to go to confession, to reveal oneself of the sacrament of reconciliation. And that it is something people know deep down inside is part of their own conversion process, part of their own metanoia. And that's the very thing that John is calling for. And he's calling for it not just as an isolated voice in the desert, but he's calling for it by borrowing deep into the prophetic tradition of Israel, which is always calling for Israel to repent always calling for it to turn away from its idols and turn back to the Lord. It's amazing to read in the, in the, in the Old Testament and the prophecies. Um, it's fascinating how weak they are sometimes when Nebuchadnezzar is going to take over um, Jerusalem. And Jeremiah tells the king, if you surrender, everything will be all right. But uh, but the king says, well, I'm afraid the nobles will, will rise up and throw me out of office if I do that. So we're going to fight. And in fighting, Jeremiah says, the city will be burned, your people will be carried off. And the king just does it anyway. And the city is burned and the people carried off. It's like, it's like unbelievable that this is what's going to happen to you. Well, but... But I'd rather have that happen than, than lose face in front of my friends. And so he destroys the whole people of Israel, the whole city of Jerusalem, for that kind of foolishness. That's the kind of sh shallowness that Israel has had to contend with for, for centuries and centuries. And the prophets are saying, you're destroying yourself. It's self-destructive. Stop it. Repent, follow the Lord, get the forgiveness of your sins, and so on. As it is written in the book of the sayings of the prophet Isaiah, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, and so forth. It's kind of interesting, but if we want to look back and we say, isn't that incredible how obtuse they were? What about ourselves, and what about the world in which we live? And what about the way, for instance, that life goes on within the body of Christ and among the people who, who claim discipleship of Jesus Christ. Are we that much more enlightened or are we that much better? And do we also then need to listen attentively both to the cry of the Baptist in the wilderness and the teaching of Jesus the Messiah who has come to save us? 
Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. Then he sank to